Jacques Jouffre here, uh, Director of Photography of Gran Turismo, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Jacques Jouffre, the Director of Photography for Gran Turismo. This episode is sponsored by Sony Cine. Visit them at sonycine.com. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the show, but see the show. With that, let's jump right in to our interview with Jacques Geoffroy. So I'm here with Jacques Geoffroy, the director of photography for Gran Turismo, which I saw last night and really, really enjoyed. So I'm excited to talk to you about it, Jacques. Welcome to Go Creative Show. Thank you for having me, and I'm looking forward to it. So the first thing that I want to talk to you about is the way that you created a sense of speed uh, in the film. I mean, we've all seen Fast and the Furious movies. We've experienced and watched, you know, car race scenes in different in different movies throughout the history of cinema. But there's something about the way that you filmed Gran Turismo that really made you feel like you were. I don't know. It just, it felt, I was feeling the speed of the cars more than really any other film that I've seen like this. Um, so certainly a compliment to you and the team. And I'd love to kind of get the way that you approach the film to represent that speed. Right. Yes. Well, well, you know, thank you for the compliment. And this was uh, our top priority. And I think the best way I did the tools that I used to achieve that are to, first of all, I use, um, uh, the camera we on a remote head that was non-stabilized. That's one. The second thing uh, that uh, I try to do every time is try to frame the shot in a way that if any element in the frame doesn't really convey us a sense of speed, then just frame it out. So if you look at the movie uh, closely and the shots, you will see that there is very little sky. There's a lot of tarmac. There's a lot on side mm. angles. And uh, that's basically my main way of conveying that sense of speed is to make the, sh make the scene uh, very, um, the frame very alive, lots of vibration in the frame, and basically eliminating in the frame anything that really do not bring or do not convey any sense of speed. Yeah, and I loved the choice that you made to center frame the car push it down to the bottom of the frame and give you the perspective of the video game. Uh, I thought it translated so well on, on camera and translated so well in cinema. And um, obviously you were, you know, taking a cue from the game itself, but what a cool perspective to see the car from that angle and experience the way that you would if you were playing the game. I love that. Yes, and uh, that was very much uh, uh, the director's intention. The fact, you know, that Gran Turismo is a is a is a race car simulator, and it's uh, it's famous for how realistic uh, sensation you are able to get. Uh, the driver is able to get drive, playing the game. So the uh, our, um, our MO was very much, you know, to shoot the scene, the race car scene, as real as possible to create that contrast between the game and actually finally going into the real deal and experiences, experiencing what it is to drive a race car. And for that, and then there was always um, an idea 
to from time to time to recreate those iconic shot angle that anyone who plays the game can automatically and quickly realize. Yeah, and and I think now I'm not. I certainly am, wouldn't consider myself a gamer at all, and I, but I am familiar with this game. Um, and just sort of doing my research before this interview, it seemed like a lot of cues were taken. Like you were leaving room for graphics around the frame. And you were trying to you know, bring us into the perspective of someone that was playing. And I thought it was a really interesting choice. And I'm curious, did that, was that something that you embraced? Or did that kind of hinder the photography for you? Was it, was it a challenge to overcome knowing that you needed to plan for all of these things that you traditionally wouldn't in you know, perhaps the way you would frame it if it weren't based on a video game? Uh, no, not really. Uh, you know, I kind of put this uh, in the back of my mind. Uh, the way we shot the film, first and foremost, you know, we were going to be shoot we're shooting IMAX. And uh, we were playing around, you know, either shooting it at 24, 185 and IMAX and switching back and forth between depending on where you are in the movie, which means when we are on the racetrack, we are playing IMAX. And then when we are more into the, the traditional narrative of a regular movie, we, are, we were either 185 or 24. We ended up picking 185 because it's the closest to what uh, a, a gamer would experience uh, playing the game with a monitor in front of him or her, which is most of the time 16 by 9. So we, we knew we were going to do that, but uh, at the same time, we were not sure. So I didn't really too much think about it. I basically framed for speed and finding the angle, finding interesting and different angle for the audience to experience a race, uh, a, a car race, you know, in a different way. And actually, it's quite very difficult because any one of us can turn the TV on and on any sport channel and you can find a, you can find a race car uh, going on on your, on your channel. And the, 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 those angles are extremely rigid. They're always at the same position. And the reason why is simply because of safety. Um, so what we try to do is to always, okay, let's give another experience to the, to, to the audience, an experience that is based on reality and convey to our audience how violent those cars are. And then that will, and if we were able to achieve that, then when we bring in more of the video game angles, you will have a nice contrast between those two. Yeah, I, I actually that that's a good point, and it's interesting that you you mentioned that you wanted to you wanted the audiences to understand how violent the movement of these cars is. And that was something that I was sort of experiencing watching it myself, where I felt like, wow, this is, I mean, you always know it's dangerous because of the potential for a crash. But I think what you did in this film is you brought us so far into the car and really let the camera kind of experience the jostling that you would have in the car, that you're realizing that just simply riding it alone, you know, without, without, the cra without a crash at all, still is extremely violent and you know, taxing on the body. Yes, and uh, I always felt that uh, watching those uh, watching those race cars, you know, that you, you don't realize until you are in one of them how violent and how brutal the sport is. It is not a pleasant ride. Uh, you are really low to the ground. There is basically no absorption whatsoever. You're feeling all the bump. You are basically jolted left and right. It's extremely taxing to the body and race car drivers are real athletes. 
So, you know, I think when you see a race car on TV, you really get that sense. And it was extremely important uh, for us to present that because it, 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 it leads to the character arc. He's going to a place, you know, that he plays in his game. He plays the game in his bedroom. And then finally, he's on the racetrack and in an actual car. And it was important from a dramatic standpoint to realize the shock that it is to, oh, okay, now here is the real deal. This is, this is the part that I was missing. And now I'm experiencing it fully and it's not particularly pleasant. Did you get to experience what it's like riding in one of them? Yes, um, absolutely. And uh, the other element that you see as well, the one, uh, the one aspect that we had to solve is try to find a pursuit car, um, the camera car with, on the vehicle that could actually keep up for, with those cars. And it took us a while, and we were finally able to, uh, to find a, a gentleman who had an actual GTR uh, uh, R3 car and as a tracking vehicle, to be able to keep up with them. And so obviously, you know, we operated inside that car. So it's extremely violent. And um, it was very difficult for the actors to get in the car. That was not the most pleasant thing for them to do. Wow. So you were operating from within one as you were from, filming. That Correct. From time to time, you have some side angle um, on the GTR3 car uh, that either I or some other cooperators, you know, would be to do a side angle. Uh, at the same time that we had the usual three camera in front of them, in front of the driver. Uh, so you really experienced that uh, firsthand, for sure. I want to talk about the use of drones in your cinematography, or at least it appears as though you're filming with drones in the movie. Um, there's a lot of scenes where you're kind of coasting through the track, almost opposite of the way that the car is moving, and really kind of giving the viewer a sense of those curves and that, and that momentum as it goes. Um, I thought it was a really beautiful choice and it was just so elegant to have the smoothness of the drone and the jaggedness of the car blended together. I love the way you did that. Um, so I guess my first question is, were you using drones or was it crane work? And also just your philosophy of how you incorporated those shots into the overall coverage. So we used drone. Uh, we had four drone team on the track. Uh, we had three drone FPV drone team, and we had one drone team, which we would call the cinematic drone, that gave us the, the big wide overview of our landscape and of the racetrack. Uh, each drone team had a sector on the track that was basically their, their uh, sandbox to play. And uh, and then basically the race car, the cars would go through the track. And when they entered that sector, it was for them to play and to give us the material that we were looking for. And then for the, and then very quickly, they would exit that sector and they would enter another sector where another third round team um, uh, would take over. So that's basically the methodology on how we achieved that. And it was extremely important for Neil to include uh, those the, the drone shot and for the same goal, which was to present the race in a different way, to present racing in a different way. And so it was an intersection of the, uh, the tracking vehicle on the, tr on, the, on, the, on the racetrack itself, following or leading our vehicle cars, 
At the same time, you had four drawn teams, four drawn around the um, around the track at various location points on the, on the track. On the service road, there is always a service road around the track. We had a pursuit arm, uh, which would most of uh, most of the time do counter move because the uh, the car could not keep up with those vehicles. So basically, they would counter, and we had a lot of foreground action taking place with the with the gates and the fences. And uh, you had three vehicle, three cameras inside the cockpit with our main character. And then you had as well uh, three or four other cameras mounted on the vehicle itself for uh, showing us a point of view from the car itself. And then you had two cameras with long lenses around the track. So that was basically my main way of going into shooting every track. Wow. That is just an incredible amount of cameras to manage. We actually have a question from uh, Damon Goshake on Instagram about how you choreograph the action and the decisions that you made for coverage because it sounds like an, a ton of cameras and you really need it for all the angles. But can you talk to us about how those decisions were made, why you ended up with so many angles and also how you were managing them during the shoot? Yes, of course. So... I made those decisions on the number of cameras. So on the race track, I think I had between 12 to 15 cameras going. Um, then um, that's that's the first thing. And why? So the reason why is just because when Neil, our director, decided to shoot everything real, and then when production said, okay, let's do it, and therefore we have 22 cars. We purchased 22 cars, which took a very long time to find. Um, the one thing that you start realizing when you start working with those cars, like I said before, they are extremely fragile, which means those are not the type of car that you can say, okay, you start at number one and you stop at number two and then you come back to one. Once they, once they, once they, you turn them on, you do not stop them. Yet they have to go through the track. Every time you stop those vehicles, it's a big logistic um, maintenance taking place. They need, they require us to to be uh, cooled off. They need, they requires a lot of changing the tires. They requires a lot of maintenance. They are extremely violent, but at the same time, they're extremely fragile. So we realized very quickly, okay, once we've got those 22 cars on the track, we better not stop them until we have a very good reason. And so what started is that every race has a maneuver or there is a story to tell. There is a story beat. And so the stunt driver will rehearse over and over exactly what was going to be that story bit, that action. And so basically they would go around the track and at, at the same spot every time they would recreate and they would redo the action, which could be Jan bypass that car. There is another car that comes in and close him off. Whatever the action was, uh, we happened to be then. And so then it was, okay, let's try to bring as many cameras as we can to catch as much as we could, hopefully before one of those cars start to break down. So that was our priority first and foremost. And uh, that, that, that's why at the end, you know, we had so many cameras on the track. Mm. Yeah, it, it's, it, it really is a feat when you look at it. And it's interesting because there are so many races throughout the film. And each one, as you said, kind of has its own story to tell. We're, we're following the the growth of our main character. And I'm curious if there was something that you did in the cinematography or the lighting or even the mo the camera motion that 
helped support the the growth of this character from race to race to race. Also, the races are getting bigger and bigger and more important and more influential, but they seem to have a way of like getting more and more exciting as they went. Um, and I thought that was just a really interesting way of approaching it. And I'd love to hear from you, you know, it, am I imagining it or is that actually happening? And also, if it is, how you were doing that? Not at all. No, that was a plan. And I'm very glad that you noticed it. And so each yeah. track and two things that was very important to us um, on uh, doing it. Each, each track has a story to tell, a specific story to tell, depending on where was our main character, Jan at the beginning in his journey to become a professional race car driver. Um, and there is a progression. There is a, pro, uh, there is a progression in the way he experienced the race. Um, there is, um, and so I use different tools and you can see the, the biggest difference that you can tell is from the first one as a professional, which is Red Bull Ring. And then you see the last one, which is obviously Le Mans. And if you look at it, the angles are quite different. For example, at Le Mans, there is a very tight side angle, almost a close-up, almost macro, uh, macro size uh, to, his, uh, to his eyes. And everything that happened always go back to that particular shot. And there is a sense on the final at Le Mans that is much more focused, uh, much more sure of himself. There is not the panic that you do see at the very beginning at the Red Bull uh, race where the camera is everywhere and the angle shown change all the time because you see everything coming at him um, mm. uh, left and right and him not being able to respond to it in a, in a proper manner. So that was the main, uh, the main goal for us is to each track as one particular story to tell. Like, for example, if you go at Nürburgring, which is where he has the crash, which has a very specific, yeah. uh, we shot it in a very specific way. And we actually, we shot it in a specific way, which is actually mimicking and remaking the actual, the actual CCTV camera of that crash, which anyone can see on YouTube. It's a very well-known uh, it's a very well-known crash uh, that you can see on YouTube. So we recreated that. And then actually there is another track, there is another scene that is not in the movie, but that we shot, which is his first race, his first time on at the GT Academy when he finally for the very first time goes into a car. And we did one, uh, we did it in a way that the entire race is seen from his POV. From the moment he gets off, uh, he go. From the moment he's in the locker room, all the way to the track, all the way getting into his car and coming in, and for whatever editing reason, in the end, it, not, it did not end, end it in the car in in the movie. But that was very much of our approach. Uh, the one thing that we try to do very much is we never want it to be to, for audience to be lost. It's very easy, particularly when you see race car movies, that, okay, the car going around the track, I don't know who's who, I don't know where he is, I don't know what is the order of, and so forth. And we really try to never never left our audience in the dark and to constantly be informed, okay, here, this is what's happening. And so those were our primary goal for each race track. Yeah, I was, I was thinking when I was watching it too, 
I mean, so much of your characters when they're racing, so much of their face is covered. Like you have nothing left really to yeah. show expression, but their yeah. shoulders and their eyes and that's it. And yep. you had to tell so much of a story in just that. Now, obviously there's compliments to the performance and the actors there, but when you are limited to only seeing eyes and basically nothing else, uh, there must have been some strategy in the way that you lit that to get as much expression as you could. Correct. So basically, it was a it was a, a, a tremendous challenge for me uh, to uh, to light the uh, the actors in the in the car because it's very limited, um, and uh, I am constantly judging the the balance exposure between the interior and the exterior. Um, with a weather that is constantly changing, uh, the tracks can be very long. And so the exposure that I can have at one part of the track may not be correct for the, the other part of the track. And um, it was extremely important to make sure that I have enough exposure there and that is combined. So that was the biggest challenge for me uh, on this movie and uh, making those decisions. And the other element as well was the fact that I did not have control, full control of exposure or all the camera on the car. Um, so it was very you, much- You did not, call. you're saying? I did not, no. Yeah. Mm. How did so you handle that? <laughs> very badly, the best I could. And uh, so we, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it was just that the technology, we did not have the technology, we did not have the mean to create a system for each track that would enable me to have full control of all the camera in the vehicle. Uh, we were able to create a fiber optic system for the director to be able to see all the camera at Video Village. But for me and my DIT and my team, the only time I had a chance to change exposure was when the car would bypass in front of the stand uh, in by the pit lane. Then for a moment, you know, we have a chance to catch back the signal and to change exposure if it was needed. I want to talk about the way that you mounted your cameras, both inside and outside of the car safely. It's a question from the Mango Shake again on Instagram. Thank you for your questions. You get great ones today. Um, and I'm curious too, because like you said, you didn't have as much control as you perhaps may have wanted to. Obviously the cars are moving very fast. These are not regular cars. So I'm curious how you mounted the cameras in a safe way, but also effective so you can get the shots that you want. Uh, yes. So, we use uh, the Sony Venice 2 camera and the Rialto uh, extension. So the, we mounted through uh, inside the cockpit. Uh, we had our usual uh, lineup was three camera in front of our driver. One was neutral, one was to the right, one was to the left or the central one. Uh, so the cockpit of those cars are extremely small. So you don't have too much space, which is the reason why I choose to go with a Rialto extension uh, mode uh, that the Sony Venice to provide. And then uh, we had uh, special lenses for Leica Lice lenses, which are extremely compact lenses, um, uh, full frame. So that was that's basically what I had for the driver. We had the, the central, central one, and then we had the left and the right. And the reason why we had one left and right was we wanted to make sure that the audience was never lost. So, which means if in the editing later on, they will use a, a ground camera to the left and then we cut inside the car, then we would have an angle this way we could stay on the right side of the line. 
And if, for example, they would be uh, cut to a camera that was on the right side of the track, then we had the angle in case they want to cut into the vehicle and to be to stay on the right side of the line. So that's the reason why we choose um, that particular configuration. Uh, most of the time on that same car, uh, the front camera looking on the hood, looking straight out. Um, and then on the same car, another camera looking from the opposite direction, looking backward from another angle. So that was pretty much um, the way we, uh, we mount the cameras uh, on the car. And we use uh, my key grip, like uh, use some uh, suction cup uh, throughout uh, with rod and so forth. So it was extremely efficient, and we tried to do that very quickly. I want to talk a little bit more about the camera package that you chose for the film. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned Sony Venice um, mm -hmm. and that Rialto extension. I just want to make sure the audience understands. We talked about the Rialto extension a couple times on the show, but can you tell us what, well, first of all, why did you make the decision to use the Sony Venice? And uh, and explain that Rialto extension a little bit more so people get a clear idea of what that actually does for you as a cinematographer. So I guess first, why was the Sony Venice the choice for you? A good question. Um, I just finished, um, well, first and foremost, I love the camera. Uh, the second is I just finished uh, Jack Ryan season four with the Sony Venice one, and I really fell in love with the camera then. And so when I did Gran Turismo, I knew I wanted to, uh, I wanted to use the Sony Venice, and the new Sony Venice 2 was coming out, and more importantly, the Rialto. Uh, why the Rialto? Uh, well, I have a very good friend. His name is Claudio Miranda and he's the DP of Top Gun. And that's basically what he did as well. And I, I could sense when I got the project of Gran Turismo that I was in a parallel way, very similar to what he had to, to do for Top Gun, which made you are in a small cockpit, uh, very limited in space. And you are going to go, on my case, on the track, in his case, in the air, and you don't have control of exposure. And I needed the camera to be able to have the dynamic range that I could handle the eyes and the low. And even if my exposure was not correct, I had enough on the on the sensor uh, and details in the highlight and the um, and the and the, and, the, and the, the shadows that I could rec uh, that I could uh, uh, fix it in post if I need to if need be. So I had the dynamic range, and more importantly, I had the Rialto. So the Rialto is basically you have the Sony Venice camera. And uh, the Rialto is a possibility for you to remove the sensor, the block sensor that is in the front. And so therefore, you basically separate the recorder, the camera, and then the sensor by a cable. And so the idea, and so you find yourself with a piece of uh, a camera that is about four inches by four inches uh, and about uh, an inch and a half thick. And uh, you have a cable and you can mount the rest of the camera, the recorder, you know, in the back of the car or anywhere you want to, uh, you want to, uh, you can put, uh, place it. And so therefore you have those three cameras next to one another, very close angle. And uh, in terms of form factor and space saving, that was very much the only way we could do it uh, in those yeah. cars and particularly the LMP2 car at Le Mans. Yeah, and if you guys haven't seen how small this thing can actually get, check photos out online because it's crazy. It's like it's not like a GoPro size, but it's pretty no. small, and it's in yeah. and it's pretty amazing. Yes, and it's a, and the dynamic crunch and the, I mean the the Sony Venice is a fantastic camera. I mean I don't think there is any other camera that uh, can handle the low light level 
as this camera I can, and more importantly, the, uh, the, the color and the rendition of color, even at very high ISO, is absolutely amazing. I don't know any other camera on the market right now that can uh, handle high ISO, low light condition without any color shift. Um, so uh, that's basically the reason why I picked. For all those reasons, I picked the Sony. But the Sony was not the only camera I had. So I had about six to seven Sony cameras on the on the on Gran Turismo. I had about three red digital Raptor. Mm. I had another. I had another uh, three, two or three uh, red Komodo. And uh, and maybe we had on some some cases we had one or two other camera in particular uh, races. Wow, it's just so much to manage. Like I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, you must. I mean, the race stuff is so cool, but you must have enjoyed when it was just a simple scene, just a little dialogue. You can make everything look nice. Nothing has to move. That must have really been a joy at times to just like break it down to the basics and just have a great simple you know, dialogue scene. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, and we had a few and uh, it was on stage most of the time and um, on some various location. And um, so, but uh, they were far and few in between for sure. And, but I enjoyed that kind of filmmaking. Um, it's an interesting, it's uh, solving problems all the time. And uh, I like that kind of, uh, uh, I, I like that kind of, uh, playing and finding a spontaneity um, uh, for the actors and uh, for them to be completely free to move wherever they want to move, not being worried about where the camera are, just do what you need to do. And you catch, we are, it's a very good way to, um, uh, to catch uh, the accident, what's not planned. And uh, that was really the only way to, uh, to shoot this movie, not only because of the race car that are running around the track, but also all the action that's taking place in the pit perch and the pit land and the pit box between uh, the David Harbour character and Danny Moore and um, the connection, the communication taking place with uh, the, uh, um, uh, Jack, uh, Jack Salter and Jan in the car. So having to play all of this all at once, uh, the only way to really uh, shoot it and to uh, film it was very much to have all those cameras where I was hoping the actors were was going to go. And, and with that, all the action taking place from a car standpoint in the pit lane, which means the various car that goes in for refueling or for technical issues. So this way, the actor could very much play all of this like a, th like a small little play. And um, starting with uh, Jack, you know, on the pit perch, communicating with his driver. There is, and he's crossing the pit lane to go into the pit box to talk to Danny. While he's crossing, there is two or three cars going in for refueling and then coming back to the pit perch or going into a different, um, a different team, um, uh, team box for a few elements and playing all of that all at once. And you needed to have the car going around the track because we could not stop them. So it's not that we just, let's just shoot this and then we shoot the racetrack um, next. We, we had to put it all together. It seems like there's quite a bit of handheld in this film as well. Curious, yeah. were you, were, was all that Sony Venice work too? Were you using the Venice handheld? We used the Sony Venice, yes. So the usual on the pit perch, pit box uh, and land, I had about five cameras 
three to four cameras. So I had one camera handheld that was constantly, most of the time, with David Harbour character. I had another handheld camera that was in a, in a, in a pit box with Danny, the Orlando Bloom character. On the, at the end of the pit lane, I had a, a Sony Venice 2 with a 12 to 1, a 36 to 435 engine lens with a doubler, which was about 800 mil. And basically, that camera would catch all the action when the car were coming in and long lens compress. And then I had one or two cameras on other places, uh, just in case picking up some B-roll. And also from time to time, you know, catching things uh, that will happen or in case, you know, uh, one of our characters will go in our direction and so forth. So that was basically the way I, I, I cover the, all the action in a pit lane, pit box, pit perch. So a couple of additional um, questions from our audience that I think would be kind of fun to talk about. First, uh, this is from Kid Hudson DP on Instagram. He wants to know, or she, I don't know who Kid Hudson is, but whoever you are, I appreciate the question. Um, the question is, did you look, did you look into the game to work out the best focal lengths for the car. Okay, so I guess this question is about how many, how, how much of the, the the cinematography decisions were based on the game itself? Like, were you using that as a visual cue for you, or inspiration rather? No, and um, I I don't know the game. I never played the game. I did see the game when we were preparing, but I never know. Here is basically the way. We there is a few iconic angles that Neil wanted absolutely and uh, of Gran Turismo, which is the high wide angle behind the scene, behind the car yep. going on that, which anyone who used it, who played the Gran Turismo game can recognize. Then there is the interior shot, interior angle, a POV of the driver looking through the windshield. You see half of the steering wheel at the bottom of your frame. And then you have his two hands left and right on either side of the steering wheel. Those are very much the, um, the, what I would say, the Gran Turismo film angle. I think we, Neil and I, we didn't talk too much about reference, uh, but I think the one film that we, we were the most uh, inclined to follow was uh, Steve McQueen, Le Mans. Mm. Um, we talked about uh, Days of Thunder, Tony Scott. Uh, you also have, obviously, Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, that we uh, we talked about, but uh, the problem is that Ford versus Ferrari was very much too much a, a period piece, you know. This uh, as opposed to as opposed to ours, which is much more modern and it takes place in real time. Uh, Days of Thunder was too stylized for us because we really wanted to make it as real as possible, and I think that's why Le Mans, Steve McQueen, Le Mans gave us that sense of a documentary feel that we were looking for and to making it as real since the concept of the Gran Turismo game is that, okay, you can have an actual real experience. So that's really very much, so that explain the long lens, that explain the, um, you know, the handheld camera, um, and that explain all those choices because we are following that particular temp, um, uh, look in a way. Yeah, I think the realism in this film, and you know, I kind of feel like, I'm curious if you agree, I, I kind of feel like there's a trend, which I like, 
to make films a little bit more real, make effects more practical. I mean, you you, 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 it, you saw it in Top Gun. Yeah, you saw it in yeah. Top Gun. Yeah, I mean, I, we did an interview with the DP of Devotion, and it was yeah. amazing how much they wanted, how, how how real that was. It just helped so much. Yeah, I, I, you totally. I, uh, you know, I'm totally. The only reason why I was interested in doing Gran Turismo is just because Neil Blomkamp's approach was he wanted to make it real. He didn't want to stylize it to make any style at all. He wanted to do, and he mentioned that word a few times to me, honest, authentic, no fabrication, nothing fake. Anytime he felt that there was something that we were, that I was embellished a little bit, he would say, no, no, I don't want it. I want it real. And uh, I totally think, agree. Do you I, think you would have taken, do you think you would have taken the project if it was completely CGI? No, I would not have. And I think there is a, I, there is a, I think there is a CGI fatigue now. And uh, I find that I have a very hard time to respond to CGI um, heavy films because at one moment, to me, it becomes a cartoon. Um, and uh, therefore, I'm not particularly interested in it because I, th I know that no one is really in danger. Uh, CGI as a place, but I think, for example, on Gran Turismo, there is quite a bit of CGI, but it's a CGI that is supplemental to the story. Everything is first is real. And then if I need to add, if we need to add another car on the track at one moment, okay, we can use CGI. But when it becomes front and center, then I basically lose interest because there is no danger. Uh, and, and anyone is, the audience is extremely sophisticated nowadays. They can tell right away, okay, that's, that's CGI. So I am definitely not the kind of DP who would want to do a Marvel movie. And I think you mentioned... You mentioned, uh, you mentioned the Fast and the Furious. Well, Fast and the Furious, it's all CGI. I know yeah. that uh, this car is going to jump from a skyscraper and then land perfectly 300, uh, 300 uh, floor uh, below. Okay. Why do I care? I don't care. Okay, I know it's going to happen. Yeah, and you're right, because, I mean, the whole purpose of the culture around Gran Turismo is the realism. Like, that's the point. So and more you really yes, can't, and more you can't yeah. make exactly you that's can't make right. a film about that that isn't real. You sort of defeat the whole purpose. That's it. And so basically, you know, just like uh, Jack Salter says, you know, on your game, you re, you know, you crash, you reset. Well, on the real, you crash, you die. So we needed yeah. to trans. We needed to to uh, we needed to communicate to to our audience how dangerous this sport is. One mistake, and that's it. And I think. You know, I think a lot of critics have criticized the movie because the crash, the Nürburgring crash, did not happen in the actual order. But the real Jan Mardenborough really wanted us to include that because it's such a big part of his life and it's such an important element of his life that it would not be right not to include it. And uh, so for that purpose, you know, we, try, we, have, we were obsessed by the realism of, that, of the project and not to beautify it, not to make it more than 20 trials, not using CGI's when we didn't need to, and just using it as a, as a supplemental head to create the universe that we needed to create. I want to talk just a little bit more about that crash as we kind of start to wrap up our conversation here. Um, it, you know, we always ask our guests to pinpoint some specific scenes they'd like to discuss. And I'm always, I'm always kind of curious which scenes will be noted. Sometimes people will bring up 
an almost insignificant scene, but it's just for some reason very challenging or rewarding for them to light or something like that. One of the scenes you brought up was the crash. And uh, where this is a real story, it needs to be done with respect for, you know, the people that survived it, the people that didn't. Like it's, it's a huge, it's a huge point in the film and it has a lot of weight to it. And I'm curious what your approach was to making this, you know, real and respectful, but also shot in a way that's interesting and compelling for the viewer. Yes, the crash is extremely important, I think, for many reasons. The first reason why this movie is a, yes, it's a, it's a video game, but it's also it's a coming of age movie. It's an underdog movie. It's a sport movie. Uh, it's a young man starting in life and uh, facing all those obstacles. And, there is, and this is one element in his life that was tragic. Uh, in many in many ways, not just for him, but for many other reasons. So we wanted to treat it with respect. And we didn't want to make it more than what it was. And we had many obstacles doing it. The first one was to actually shoot at Nürburgring. Uh, we, we got a lot of blowback because Nürburgring did not want us to shoot it, to shoot it at the, on the track for a very obvious reason. This is not something that they want to advertise. So it took a lot from production to finally get the permission from Nürburgring to let us shoot on the track. Uh, the oh, wow. other so thing you were able that to. The, yes, the one thing they did not want it, they, they refused to let us re, uh, recreate the crash. So, um, and we had a very limited amount of time. I think we had two days to be able to do what we needed to do. And so we, what we did is that we let's be objective to it and let's shoot it the way we we remember it. And the way we remember it is basically what you can see anyone who wants to go on YouTube and check this crash. And this crash was recorded with the CCTV cameras. And so what we did is that we recreated those CCTV angles. And so we went to the actual location at that turn uh, and we replaced our camera to where the CCTV camera were. And then you can look at the, um, you can look at both back and forth and you could see it's a very close. Mm. So basically the only thing was we had to recreate the car CGI. And the only thing we added to it is the interior of the cockpit mm. where we added and we recreated basically from Jan's POV what he was experiencing. And so I think that was very, very important for us to do it that way. And it was also very important to shoot the following scene at the location where it happened, which is when he's transported by Medevac, the helicopter landing and all that stuff. So we did it exactly where it happened. So that's the approach we, uh, the approach, uh, we took. And I'm very proud of that scene because it's a very simple scene. There is very few angles. Those angles are already created by the CCTV camera on the track. We did not push it more than we needed to. And I'm very proud of the VFX um, uh, work that they did on it uh, by Victor Muller, our VFX supervisor. It's, it's seamless the way he did it. And so that's the reason why for all the work that we did and all the obstacles that we had to face to be able to recreate that crash that I'm, I like very much that scene. Yeah, it really is just a fantastic scene. And I wasn't familiar with the story at all, sort of by design. I don't like to go into these movies knowing everything about it. Uh, I like to just Mm -hmm. kind of experience it fresh. Um, 
And I thought it was great. I mean, it, it was really impactful. And I, what I thought was so interesting about the way you did it is because I think the natural tendency would be to over-exaggerate a moment like that with a ton of camera angles, a ton of motion, a ton of movement. It seems as though you took the opposite approach. Like when, when everything, when all the racing was going on, that's when you had the action and the motion and the craziness. But for the crash, it was a fairly intimate scene considering how, you know, that it was a car crash. Like I, I just thought it was a really good I don't know. It was, it was an interesting approach that I was not expecting. Yes, thank you. We, we tried to be very, um, you know, um, not to do too much. And for example, the experience uh, what we recreated inside the cockpit, we talked a lot about uh, with race car drivers and that have experienced that. And basically, they are on the, in the car, and then suddenly, you know, they're not seeing the road anymore, and they are basically flying until you have the big impact. So we recreated that. We recreated as well. We added extra. We recreated all the people, the audience who were watching it and were present during the during the um, uh, in that spot. And so basically, we shoot those plates, and then our VFX supervisor took over from there. Yeah, it was just excellent. We've got one last question I wanted to ask you about from Kid Hudson, uh, uh, Kid Hudson DP on Instagram. Curious about how much of that 24 hours at Le Mans was location versus stage? Uh, very good question. We did not shoot at Le Mans. So nothing at all? Nothing at Le Mans because it's impossible to get the permit. They yep. do not want us. I can imagine. That's not an easy yes. location to secure. <laughs> yes. We did not shoot on stage, but we recreated Le Mans in three, with three different tracks. So there is, we shot some at Le Mans at in uh, in um, at Slovakia Ring, some at um, if I remember well, it was not not at Red Bull, and we did some at uh, Angaro Ring in Budapest, and then we did one specific stuff on the abandoned airfield in uh, Budapest. Mm. So basically, when you see Le Mans, you see four different locations. And wow. the, um, so you had um, the, on the tarmac, we needed to recreate the Mulsan Strait, which is, a, I think, three, four kilometer long strait at Le Mans. So we recreated that on an airfield. And then we recreated some of the turn at Le Mans at Slovakia during the night work. So the Mulsan Strait and the uh, and the uh, Slovakia ring were for the night work and some daytime, and then we use a bit of uh, Red Bull and uh, Angaro ring to recreate the stand and all the pit lane, pit box, and so forth. So that was uh, very difficult. Wow, it's amazing. You would never. I mean, y y you would. You would assume that you didn't get the clearance, although this is a huge movie in a big studio, so perhaps you got the location. But I guess it's not its not surprising that you didn't get the location. But what is surprising yeah. is that that is made up of four different tracks because it's just so seamless in the film. I mean, what, yeah. what an accomplishment. Yes, thank you. And then the, the hardest part in terms of lighting was the Mulsanne Strait. And uh, because we shot it at night, it takes place at night, and... Uh, we shot it on an airfield, um, and uh, 
the in uh, the Mulsanne Strait, there is absolutely no light whatsoever. Uh, there is no lamppost of any kind. So basically, the only light that you have are the headlight of the car, of the car in front or, or behind you. But we needed to lift the, the ambience uh, enough for having details in the blacks for our VFX team to do what they needed to do in terms of set extension. So that was quite a complicated endeavor to do that, and uh, that requires huge construction crane with a lot of sub-box and so forth to recreate that portion as well. And uh, for the Slovakia ring, for all the network at, in the rain was very, very difficult as well. Did you take advantage of that dual ISO in the Venice when you were doing the night work? Not so much on that particular movie. Uh, actually, I'm doing it much more on the project that I'm working on right now. Uh, because I had enough light. And uh, the problem that we were having on this one particularly was the fact that it was too bright for the, uh, for the, uh, for the drivers. And uh, the uh, backlighting the terrain was very difficult. At yeah, one moment, it's too bright you, enough, but the actors, but the, the, the drivers are, are kind of blind, blinded by it. So I did not have too much in terms of exposure. I had enough light to light it. I, I didn't, didn't need to light too much. Uh, in terms of using uh, the double eye, so. Wow. Well, the film is just such a joy to watch. It's a lot of fun. And I'm, I mean, I would consider myself neither a video gamer nor somebody that really seeks out action movies, but I enjoyed it through and through. And the cinematography is amazing. I love when, when there were visual effects that were obvious, it was used in such a cool way. Um, you know, the, the, kind of exploding car and then it sucks back in and just incorporating the graphics of the video game into it. I just really love the way that you handled it. And clearly our audience are big fans of your work as well with all these questions that we have. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience making this movie. It, it It's just, it's excellent. And um, you know, you guys just congratulations on such a, such a really nice piece of work. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything. And thank you for having me. I uh, love doing it. And um, I hope uh, your, your audience and everyone listening uh, enjoyed it as well. All right. I want to thank Jacques Chauffra for coming on the show and talking to us all about his work on Grand Turismo. Of course, I want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And Dave Siegel over at SiegelSound.com for mixing, mastering, and making the show sound so good. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can not only see the show, but hear the show? No, you can always hear the show. But on YouTube, you can see the show, and that's what makes it even better. So you can check it out there over at YouTube. Of course, all things Go Creative Show are at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram at Ben Consoli, B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I, where you can see all about myself, the stuff I'm doing with my production company, BC Media Productions, and my music project, Three Second Chances. So there's all sorts of stuff there. You can follow me on, on Instagram at Ben Consoli. Thank you all for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.